One of our most basic human needs is the need of security. In 1943, it was Abraham Maslow, that American psychologist, who published a paper entitled A Theory of Human Motivation. In that paper, his thesis was that human behavior is motivated by the meeting of needs. And these needs are always met in a sequential order. Maslow is most known for his hierarchy of human needs. He depicts five basic needs. He portrays them as a pyramid. At the base of that pyramid is the broadest of all needs. He calls them physiological needs. You and I have certain physical needs that must be met before we can do anything else. Physical needs like food and water, sleep, shelter. After that, he says, the most basic of needs is that of security. Human beings long to feel secure in their surroundings and secure with their future. Once that is achieved, then there's the social need. Since human beings are relational by creation, we have a need to have interpersonal relationships. Most of that is found and forged in the family unit. It's there where you begin to understand what it is, how to operate as parents to children, as brothers to sisters. Once that need is met, we seek to meet the need of what Maslow calls esteem. You and I would reference it as self-respect. Every person has a basic need to feel as if their life is valuable and of worth. Then the apex of his pyramid, he calls self-actualization. That's where a human being not only can visualize his or her potential, but then they can act out on that potential so that they can be a positive uh, contributor to overall society. Abraham Maslow is known for his hierarchy of needs. Some people have regarded him as a genius. Others have said he's nothing more than a humanistic psychologist. I didn't come today to debate who exactly is Abraham Maslow. What I am saying is that I think he's on to something. One of the most basic human needs is that of security. We need to feel safe and secure. That's why you put an alarm system in your house. That's why you buy the vehicle with the added safety features. That's why you childproof your home, the doors, the cabinets, the electrical sockets, just because you know your family needs to be safe and secure. That's why you stuff some money away in a 401k account or a retirement plan. In the aftermath of September the 11th, that's why our government formed the Department of Homeland Security. They needed to do their best to communicate to the American people that we are safe and secure. This is a driving need that every human has. This need for security is not a recent phenomenon. It's nothing that was recently developed in the 20th or the 21st century. No, every person that's ever lived, every person has wanted to feel safe and secure. Take, for example, the psalm that I just read for you, Psalm 121. It's the second of 15 psalms of ascent. In the psalm book, from Psalm 120 to Psalm 134, all 15 of them are listed as songs of ascent. These were the songs that were sung as people made their way in holy pilgrimage to the sacred city of Jerusalem. 
You know that the Jewish people were a traveling people. They were always on the go. And they would go to Jerusalem for various sacred events. And as they traveled, none of their camels were equipped with Sirius XM. They didn't have radios. They didn't have iTunes accounts. They had nothing to pass the time. So as they traveled, they would just recite the Psalms and sing these songs. And they traveled a mighty long journey. The travel was not only over a treacherous terrain, but it could also be quite dangerous. Oh, hiding in the shadows along the roads could be thugs and thieves. So one of the first things on the mind of the traveler is his own personal safety, the safety not only for him, but also for his family. And you find this in the second of 15 songs of ascent. They are thinking about how am I going to be secure? Who is going to help me? How can I uh, be helped along my journey? And so this psalmist is talking about ultimate security. He begins with what I think of as a question. If I lift my eyes to the hills, where does my help come from? I realize that there are some English translations that render that not as a question, but as a statement. The King James Version of the English Bible says, I lift my eyes to the hills, from whence cometh my help. They put a period at the end of that. They interpret it as a statement. And it can be translated that way. It can also be translated as a question. In the ancient Hebrew language, there's no punctuation at the end of the sentence. You don't find a period or an exclamation point or a question mark. But I think because of grammatical reasons, because of linguistic reasons, I think that the psalmist is not making a statement. He's asking a question. If I lift my eyes to the hills, where does my help come from? The main reason I say that is because he answers his own question in the very next line. My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. I think he's asking a question and he's answering the question. But for you and I to feel the full brunt of this question, we have to understand what is he asking and what are the hills that he's referencing. If I lift my eyes to the hills, where does my help come from? Some have said that the hills that the author's referring to are the hills of pagan worship. As people made their way to Jerusalem outside the city gate, there are several hills, mountaintops, there are various places. And on those hills, that's where pagans would construct their pagan altars to their false gods and goddesses. It's there where you found some idols and altars to Baal and Asherah, just to name a couple. Ungodly things, vile things, sensual things were done on those quote-unquote high holy hills outside of Jerusalem, all under the guise of worship, all under the guise of religion. What's interesting is that any time revival broke loose in the nation of Israel, the king, whoever it was at that time, always did the same thing. He tore down the high places. What does that mean? It means that he went out to those high holy hills and he tore down, smashed the sacred stones, destroyed the altars, brought down those pagan idols. And it could be that the author of Psalm 121 is asking the question, if I lift my eyes to false worship, where's my help going to come from? And when I'm at a point of need, when my world gets rocked, when my world is caving in, when I have a problem, when I experience suffering, tragedy, sickness, and setback, when I need help, where's my help going to come from if I look only to that dead, dumb, mute piece of wood? 
If I look only to that altar, if I look only to that idol, where's my help going to come from? If I worship some dead idol, if I lift my eyes to the hills, those high places of paganism, if I lift my eyes to the uh, idols of my culture, if I lift my eyes to those false idols of worship, where is my help going to come from? Is that piece of wood really going to be able to help me? Is that statue of gold really going to be able to help me? That statue can't see, it can't talk, it can't move, it can't feel, it can't do anything. Is that piece of wood, is that statue really going to help me in my time of need? If I lift my eyes to the hills, where does my help come from? Some have said he's referencing false worship, pagan idolatry. Others have said, no, he's not referencing that. Really, the word hills can also be translated as mountain. And certainly the Hebrew word could be rendered mountain. If I lift my eyes to the mountain, where does my help come from? Undoubtedly, as the author, as the psalmist made his way into the city of Jerusalem, he would have seen the glorious temple. It's there on a holy mountain. In fact, Jerusalem in scripture is called Mount Zion. It's, it's lifted up, it's elevated, it's on a mountain. And at the apex of that mountain is that grand glorious temple and the Palestinian sun would shimmer off the gold and the other precious stones and metals that were used to construct that temple. And every time people would enter into Jerusalem, that's the first thing they would see. And maybe what the psalmist is saying, if I lift my eyes to that building, where's my help gonna come from? That temple represented the religion in Israel's history. If I lift my eyes to religion, where's my help going to come from? The psalmist could be asking, when I have the dark night of the soul, when I'm wondering, when I'm questioning, when things keep me up at night, when I'm really struggling, will religion rescue me? If I lift my eyes unto that temple, where's my help going to come from? Is the answer to life doing more religious activity, going to more things, stuffing my calendar with more events? If I lift my eyes to the temple and all the trappings of religion, religiousosity, is that going to be my answer? If I lift my eyes to that mountain, to that building, to that structure, where's my help come from? Is that building really going to be able to help me? More spirituality, is that really going to help me? Others have said, well, he's not really referencing pagan idolatry, and he's not even referencing the Temple Mount. This is poetry, so maybe it's just richly symbolic. Maybe he's saying, if I lift my eyes towards any symbol of strength in my culture, any mountain, and his culture is much like our culture. What are the symbols of strength in Israel? It's the same as in America or any culture. It's money, it's military, just to name a couple. Whoever has the money has the power. And if you have a bigger uh, military, then you can ward off any enemy. And maybe what the psalmist is saying is, if I lift my eyes unto money, if I lift my eyes unto the government, if I lift my eyes unto the military, what's going to happen when the money runs out? Where does my help come from when the economy tanks? If my help, if my source of security is in my retirement fund or my 401k, what happens when everything plummets? If my strength, if my security is in the military, what happens when there's a bigger military that comes over the horizon? 
What happens if this nation falls? Because nations rise and nations fall. If we are simply looking, the psalmist says, to our culture, to our country, to this nation, what happens when the money runs out and the military is not as strong as it used to be? If I lift my eyes to the hills, to the mountains, where does my help come from? Now you have all these ideas swirling in your mind, don't you? You say, okay, preacher, which one is it? Is is it pagan idolatry? Is it the temple mount? Is it some symbol of strength in his culture? And my answer is, yeah, it's probably all the above. He probably is referencing all of those things. And he's asking a great question. If I lift my eyes to the hills, where is my strength going to come from? Not only does he ask the question, but he answers the question. I love it when scripture does that. He not only asks it, but he answers it. My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. Lord is written in all capital letters. It's the unmentionable name. It's Yahweh. My help comes from the Lord. Not a pagan god or goddess. Not some trapping of religion. Not some symbol of strength and culture. My help comes from the Lord. He's the maker of heaven and earth. The one who helps me, the psalmist says, is the one who flung the stars into space. The one who helps me is the one who taught the sun how to shine. The one who helps me is the one who has numbered the grains of sand on every seashore. The one who helps me, he's the one who breathed life into the nostrils of every living creature. The one who helps me is the one who spoke and everything came into existence, whether seen or unseen. If I lift my eyes to the hills, where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. My help comes from the one who spared not his own son, but gave himself up so that you and I might be saved. Our help comes from the Lord. So let the pagan idols fall. And in fact, let um, everything in this culture be destroyed. The one thing that will remain is the Lord Almighty. Our help comes from the Lord, maker of heaven and earth. It dawned on me this past week that the author spends all the rest of this psalm talking about how great God is. The first two verses just pose the question and supply the answer. The other six verses of the eight verse psalm, it it just talks about how great God is. There's a lesson in that, isn't there? I mean, how much time do we spend describing how great our God is? The psalmist spends three quarters of the time just telling you, describing for you how great God is. Do we do that Oh, we talk about our great plans and our great policies and our great predictions. We talk about our great families, our great fortune, our great purchases. We talk about our great jobs and our great children. We talk about our great pain and our great cancer and our great heartache and our great discomfort. We talk about all our great teams and our great sports and our great vacations and all of our great things that we do. We talk about a lot of great things, but how much time do we spend describing our great God? This psalm spends three quarters of the time describing a great God. He is powerful, verses 3 and 4. He is our protector, verses 5 and 6. He's ever-present, verses 7 and 8. This is our great God. He is powerful. So powerful that he will not 
permit your foot to slip. The imagery is that you will not fall headlong into the ravine. That's good for someone traveling the treacherous roads of Israel because there are a lot of ravines that are there, a lot of high cliffs and low valleys, and it's nice to know that God will steady your step. It's nice to know that he will not allow you to slip down into the ravine. Our God is so powerful, he never even takes a nap. He never slumbers, nor does he sleep. He never takes a day off. He never has a day of vacation. He's never gone fishing. He's never out to lunch. He never just drifts off. He never just kind of simply falls asleep at command. He's always awake, always alert, always aware. And he never gets tired. Therefore, that means he never gets cranky. There are times when you and I get tired and we get cranky. This afternoon, probably many, if not most of you, will kind of drift off into sleep. Oh, but our God's not that way. He never drifts off. He never slumbers. He never sleeps. He's so powerful, he doesn't even need rest. He's powerful. The author says not only is he powerful, but he is our protection. He will watch over you, the psalmist says. He will be your shade at your right hand. The word shade is shade or or shield. He will shade you, shield you, so the sun will not harm you by day nor the moon by night. That's a mirrorism. A mirrorism is where the two extremes are identified to imply that everything in between is fair game. So it's like what your mother said when you came in after playing all day and she said, you are dirty from head to toe, go take a bath. She's using a mirrorism. She's saying that you are dirty from the top of your head to the bottom of your feet. The implication is you're dirty all over the place, so you need to go get a bath. What the psalmist says is our God is so powerful in his protection of us that even day or night, it does not matter. Because our God is our shield. He is our shade. The sun will not harm us by day nor the moon by night. It could be that he's being very symbolic. After all, this is poetry. Poetry is rich in symbolism. It could be that what he's saying is that our great God is such a powerful protector. He protects you whether you're walking in the light of the Lord or whether you're dabbling in the darkness of disobedience. The sun will not harm you by day, nor the moon by night. Even when you go astray, our God does not. Our God protects you. Our God shields you. Our God knows how to pull you back in. Whether you're walking in the glorious light of the Lord or whether you're walking on the dark side just a bit and dabbling in sinful disobedience. Oh, our God is a protector. He is your shade at your right hand. Not only that, but he is ever-present. Psalmist says he will keep you from all harm. He watches over your coming and going both now and forevermore. You never escape his eye. He's always watching you. He never slumbers or sleeps. He never turns his back on you. He never closes his eyes. He knows where you are, who you are, and how you are. He knows exactly what's going on. He knows where you are. He's watching over your coming and going both now and forevermore. He knows you're here today. Nobody has to tell him. He knows where you're going to go once you leave here. No one has to inform him. Our God is a great God. He is ever-present. It was Charles Haddon Spurgeon who said, Our God is closer to us than our shadow. That's pretty close. God is closer to us than our shadow. King David says in Psalm 139, If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I 
cast and, and, and I'm set on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. What he's saying is I can't outrun God. Every place I go, I bump into God. It's not that just God is just so obese, but all of God is everywhere. He is ever present. The psalmist spends three-fourths of his time talking about our great God. How powerful he is. How much of a protector he is. How present he is in our life. You can't read Psalm 121 without coming across the phrase, watches over. It's a Hebrew word that can be translated guard or watch or keep or take charge of or preserve. The author mentions this five times. Verse 3, verse 4, verse 5, verse 7, verse 8. Now listen, I'm a preacher. I know the power of repetition. I, mean, I know that when a speaker, when an author, when a preacher repeats himself, what he's doing is he's trying to just drive home the point, just tap the nail over and over again. Well, this guy, I mean, the author of this psalm, he drives home the nail, don't you think? He watches over you. He watches over you. The Lord watches over you. The Lord watches over The Lord watches over Israel. The Lord watches over his people. Five times in eight verses, you can't walk away from Psalm 121 without realizing that our God watches over us. He guards us. He protects us. He takes charge of us. He preserves us. Psalm 121 makes some hefty claims, doesn't it? I mean, it makes some big-time promises. Our God will not cause your foot to slip. Our God never falls asleep on you. He's always awake and aware. Day and night. Our God protects you. Our God is always your shade and your shield. Our God watches over you. He knows you're coming and going, not only just now, but forevermore. And the biggest promise that's given is that our God will keep you from all harm. And my question this morning is, is that true? Is it true? Because there are some people in our culture and maybe even a few people in this crowd that question the truthfulness of those claims. Is it really true that God will keep your foot from slipping? Is it really true that God never turns his back on you? Is it really true that no harm will ever come to you as a child of God? There are people that really question this. If this psalm is true, what do you say to the parents of the 16-year-old who had just gotten his driver's license? And as he was driving down the highway, apparently a drunken man had gotten behind the wheel of the car and his car had collided with a 16-year-old's vehicle. And that 16-year-old who had so much promise, so much life, so much future, was struck dead and killed. What do you say to mom and dad? Do you take them to Psalm 121? God will keep you from all harm. Your foot won't even slip. 
Oh, he'll protect you and your child. He'll protect both now and forevermore. He's watching over you. What do you say? If this psalm is true, then walk with me down the hallway of Children's Hospital in downtown Birmingham. Let's walk into that room of that eight-year-old girl. Her body is eaten up with cancer. There's not one hair on her head because of her chemo treatments. Every day for her is a fight to live. What do you tell her? What do you tell her parents? Do you take them to Psalm 121? No harm will come to you. God will not allow your foot to slip. What do you say to the man who calls me to say, I just found out that my wife is cheating on me? I confronted her. And she said, I don't love you anymore. I'm leaving. She got in the car. She left. This grown macho man sobbing on the other end of the phone. Pastor, what do I do? What do I tell him? Take him to Psalm 121. God will keep you from all harm. He'll never turn his back on you. He never falls asleep, not at the wheel of your life. What do you say to the grieving family of that grandmother? That grandmother whose life was brutally taken from her at the hands of a drug-crazed grandson. What do you say to that family? Well, she lived a long life. Oh, it was, it was apparently her time. And no harm will come to her. What do you say? Do you see how sometimes there are some people that when they hear Psalm 121, they think to themselves, is it true? Whenever you make a statement, you can only do about four things with that statement. You can either repeat it, you can prove it, you can apply it, or you can explain it. The psalmist understands his dilemma. He realizes the problem. When he makes this statement, he's got to prove it. He knows he has to prove it. He knows he has to prove that his help comes from the Lord. And his Lord is the great God, the maker of heaven and earth. So he attempts to prove it by making all of these promises. And I'm here today to tell you that I, I believe Psalm 121 is true. I know it to be true. But this psalm never promises the absence of suffering. This psalm never promises the absence of tragedy. This psalm never promises that death, even tragic death, won't come knocking on your door. Oh yes, our God is powerful. He's powerful enough to keep you from it, but he's also powerful enough to keep you through it. And sometimes that demonstration of power, keeping you through something, is even a greater demonstration than keeping you from it. Oh, our God is a great protector. Certainly he can protect you from 
the trials and tragedies of life. But our God is such a powerful protector, he can even protect you through the trials and tragedies of life. And yes, our God is ever present. And just because something bad happens to you, that does not mean that God has shut his eye towards you. It does not mean that God has turned his back on you. Why is there a connection that if something bad happens, that must mean that God is asleep at the wheel? This Psalm never makes that connection. This Psalm attempts to prove that our great God is powerful. He's powerful enough. He doesn't fall asleep. Yes, he can keep you from it, but he can, he's powerful enough to keep you through it. Our God is your protection. He can protect you from some stuff, but he also protects you even through the stuff as he shields you and shades you from ultimate harm. And our God is always watching you. So don't make the mistake of thinking that if something bad happens to you, that must mean that God is not watching. Scripture never says that. God sees all things. I've only been a dad for 15 years. It's not very long. Some of you have outpaced me four times over. There's a lot about parenting I don't know. But I remember uh, when Molly Grace was very young, about two years old, I remember this story very vividly. She fell she scraped the palms of her hands, scraped her knees. She came running to me, Daddy, Daddy. She was very upset. I, I said, Molly Grace, do, do you want Daddy to, to kiss it and make it feel better? And she said, yes. And then she did something rather strange. She took her palm, which that's where the hurt was, and she turned it over. And that's where she wanted me to kiss on the outside of her hand. My kiss was so medicinal. It had such great power. I kissed her on the outside of the hand and somehow it made the palm of her hand feel better. It was remarkable how that happened. As I walked away from that experience, I realized, you know, um, what makes a parent good is not his or her ability to keep children from bumps and bruises. What makes a parent good is his or her ability that when the child does stumble and fall, that parent is able to be there to pick them up, dust them off, give them kiss, uh, communicate their love and send them on their way. What this psalm promises is that that's who God is. He's powerful. He is your protector. And he is ever-present. My favorite chapter in all the Bible is Romans 8. Romans 8 is a mountaintop in the landscape of Scripture. It begins by declaring, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. In Romans 8, 28, it says, and we know that God works in all things to accomplish his good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. God uses all things, good things, bad things, pleasant things, painful things, uh, setback and success. He uses all things for his good. And you get to Romans 8, 38, and Paul the apostle says, I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any power, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else can ever separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. I want to submit to you that the apostle Paul is thinking about uh, Psalm 121 when he declares that nothing in all creation can separate us from the love of God. Because I know that when you come to Psalm 121, the biggest promise that leaves questions is how in the world can God say, I will keep you from all harm? Because certainly you've been hurt, you've been harmed. How can God say, I will keep you from all harm? We have a different definition of harm. 
We think that harm is anything painful, anything uncomfortable, anything unsettling. But the Hebrew word for harm, the Hebrew word for harm is a word that means separation that is eternal. And God will keep you from all harm. He will keep you from all separation that is eternal. Our God is powerful enough to do that. Our God is your protection and he will do that. Our God is ever present and he promises to do that. Our God will keep you from all separation that is permanent. So this is what Paul is talking about when he says there is nothing that can separate us, sever us permanently from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Disease can't do it. Disobedience can't do it. Sin can't do it. Cancer can't do it. Broken relationships can't do it. Heartache can't do it. Uh, trials can't do it. Trouble can't do it. Tragedy can't. There is nothing that can separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. I came to tell you, church, that this morning I want you to know that our God is a great God. He is powerful. He is your protection. He is ever present. And because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone. Because I know he holds the future and life is worth the living just because he lives. Is it true? You bet your bottom dollar it's true. Is it true? Absolutely it's true. Is it true? Yes, it's true. This is a psalm of security in Christ. If I lift my eyes to the hills, where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord. He's the maker of heaven and earth. Can you say that today? Heavenly Father, we bow before you. We give you this invitation. Father, we thank you for a robust scripture that makes some audacious promises. And yet, only a God who is robust himself can make such promises and make good on these promises. So God, today, we worship you because you are the great God. In fact, our picture of you has gotten greater even today. Lord, there may be someone listening to my voice and they've never accepted you as Savior. And Lord, I pray that today is the day of their salvation. There's someone here who is struggling in a deep pit of despair and darkness. And they may wonder, is it true? And, oh, God, I pray that you will help them to cast all their cares upon the one who cares so very much for them. Lord, there's somebody here who needs to make this their home and join this congregation. Lord, the altar's open. Whatever you need to do, I pray that you'll do it in Jesus' name. Amen.